Hi, welcome to the New Covenant Presbyterian Church Sermon Podcast, a congregation of the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, the OPC, in the San Francisco Bay Area. Brothers and sisters, if you would, please turn to Psalm 117. Psalm 117, if you would please rise as well as we honor the public reading of God's word. Psalm 117. Praise the Lord, all you Gentiles. Laud him, all you peoples, for his merciful kindness is great towards us, and the truth of the Lord endures forever. Praise the Lord. Thus far, the reading of God's word, you may be seated. Let's go before the Lord once again in prayer. Oh, Father, as you come to this psalm, which is uh, such a short psalm, which speaks of the great culmination of the gospel, with the worship and praise of your name by the entire world. Help us, Lord, to see the beauty of your worship, that every nation, tribe, and tongue will gather together to worship and praise you, that even we ourselves are part of this culmination as we are worshiping you from the furthest corners of the world. Lord, give us eyes to see the truth of these things and even to be zealous to see this work go forward that your salvation might reach to the ends of the earth. And so, Lord, we do pray, sanctify your people and get glory for yourself. For we ask all this in the name of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. One of the things that's true about pastoral work is you have to read lots of books. And uh, sometimes you read very long books. Sometimes you read very complicated books. Not everything is equally complicated and not everything is equally long. But sometimes you do have to read those sorts of things. And there are some books that you read that are complicated, and it's difficult to even think about how they could be simplified to explain to somebody, you know, like maybe my son or my daughters. It would be difficult to explain even what the, the, the point that's going on is just too complicated. But what I've found is, is that the best books and the most helpful books are the ones that are very deep. They're sometimes complicated and long, but the point that they are making can, in fact, be very easily simplified so that anybody can understand the truth that's being communicated. It gives a fuller light to the scriptures, so that uh, as deep as the truth may be, it's still, in fact, able to be grasped by even the youngest of children. And this is one of the things that we see all throughout the scriptures. The scriptures are infinitely deep, and yet its truths can be understood by even the youngest of children. And here we have an example of that with this particular psalm. We have This is the shortest psalm of all 150 psalms. And it speaks of very simple truths, but these truths are yet very powerful. They're developed in many places throughout the Bible, but it's one of the great things about this particular psalm is is it's almost a summary of some of these great and deep truths that we have, some of the truths that we hold near and dear to our hearts, things like God is the God of the entire world, not just of one little nation. God, uh, as the God of the world, ought to be worshipped by the entire world, and that's In worshiping God, we recognize that he is a God who is merciful, a God who is faithful, a God who shows his merciful kindness from generation to generation in all that he does. 
and who keeps all of his promises. All these things which every Christian holds very dear to his heart are summarized in this very psalm. Now remember, uh, we're continuing to make our way through this first section in book five of the Psalter. The section really ends, you could say, with Psalm 119, 118, and 119 are kind of a pair. Uh, and we're moving now through the Egyptian Hillel, is what they call it, Psalms 113 to 118. This is the second to last one uh, in that series. This is really a uh, the bridge psalm that leads us into the great climax and conclusion of Psalm 118. Uh, psalm 117 is also uh, part of three psalms that all end with the words hallelujah. That's what it means when it says praise the Lord there in the original. It's hallelujah. And so it's the culmination of uh, a triad of psalms dealing with things like the resurrection of the dead, God caring for his saints even in death, and they're and them worshiping him because of that. This psalm is the conclusion of all that, and it gets us ready to uh, think on the great conclusion of the whole set in Psalm 118, where we have a, a great record of uh, the the building of the temple that that the Messiah himself uh, would do. And so this is a this is a psalm that's got uh, a lot in it. It's very significant in terms of its place within the Psalter, and it teaches us very simple truths because of God's loving kindness and faithfulness. He's to be worshipped by all the nations. Even that conclusion is almost the entire length of the, of the psalm. Because of God's loving kindness and faithfulness, he is to be worshipped and praised by all the nations. And so we'll look at this just in two simple headings. First in verse 1, we see the call for the nations to worship. And then in verse 2, the reasons for worship, which is God's merciful kindness and his faithfulness or his truth. So look uh, first at, at uh, verse 1 again. The call for the nations to worship. Praise the Lord, all you Gentiles. Laud him, all you peoples. Here the psalmist is looking to a time when all of the nations are being gathered in. The nations are, uh, throughout all of Old Testament history, they are not worshiping God. They are entrenched in the worship of idols. But even as we saw, uh, very many clues are given within this set of psalms, beginning with Psalm 113. Very many clues are given to, to indicate to us that really what the psalmist is looking forward to is the days when the Messiah would come. He's looking forward to the days when, in fact, the Gentiles would receive this great salvation. And they would, as being called to worship here, they would, in fact, respond. They would respond with their heartfelt praise to God as they give up their idol worship and they come and they flee to Zion. They, they come to that mountain, which is raised up as the highest of all mountains. And they say, come, let us go to Jerusalem that we might learn of his law and walk in his ways. This is what the psalmist is looking forward to, that great day when all that happens. Remember Psalms 115 and 116 dealt with the resurrection of the dead at, at the end of days when the Messiah would come. And so here too, it's fitting as the psalmist concludes these things that he would remind us that part of what would happen when the Messiah comes is that all of the nations would be gathered together into one, that all of them would come and they would worship God. And this is an amazing truth that we think of. It's something that's the Old Testament saints look forward to, and it's something that you and I benefit greatly from. As you and I, very many of us, uh, most of us by far, uh, do not have Jewish background, Jewish descent. We could not claim uh, this kind of grace being a part of the, the people of God outwardly. We only receive this grace insofar as we receive it in the Lord Jesus Christ. When he came, now all the nations obey this particular call to worship. And notice as well just that very fact. That as the psalmist here is speaking of the days when the nations would be gathered in and they would be saved from their sins, notice how it is 
it is put forward as a call to worship. That the call for the nations to be saved is also a call for all of the nations to come and worship. And this is, in fact, said twice. Notice, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and laud him. Another word for praise. Laud him, all you people. Said twice to be emphatic. When the nations are gathered in for salvation, the great purpose is the worship of God's name. And this continues to be the greatest and deepest reason for doing missions in the church. Why is it that we that we labor to see all the ends of the earth come to repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ? It is because God deserves to be praised. Really, the work of missions is just this work. It is a call to the nations to worship God. Now, there are really, if we think of the idea of missions and the, the preaching of the gospel to the nations, there's really two great reasons why uh, the why missions must be done in the church. The first is uh, because everyone who does not know the Lord Jesus Christ is in fact lost. They are in their sins and there is no hope of salvation outside of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is uh, in a lot of ways an unpopular truth. Uh, some that one that uh, many would seek to deny. You know, how could it be fair that God would send someone to hell for never hearing the name of the Lord Jesus Christ? But the reality is, is that God will actually send no one to hell who is righteous and who never hears the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. So this is to say, uh, if you want to, if you speak about fairness, God will always only judge someone exactly according to his deeds. He does everything perfectly fair. He will judge everyone perfectly in light of the light that's been given to them. And the reality is, is that because of sin, every single person is stuck in sin unless they hear the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so this is a great reason to go. This is, And this is a, a reason that has driven many to the mission field. Why do we preach the gospel? That souls might be saved for the Lord Jesus Christ. It's one of the great reasons. But the second reason that's focused on particularly in this psalm, and which is even the greatest reason, is not just for the sake of the salvation of souls and of care for them, but an even greater reason is concern for the worship and praise of God. This is to say we really have two, two things that motivate us as a church to want to participate in missions, to support in any way that we can. The first we could say is we, we care for other people. But the second one, which is even greater, is that we care for God. We care for his name. It, it pains us to see God's name treated like nothing among the nations. That This God who has done so much for the world that he would be ignored and unknown. That the nations would persist in the worship of idols when God did in fact send his son to be the savior of the entire world. And so this is one of the things that has always driven, driven missions as well. We do it because we care for others and we really do care for others. We want to see souls saved for the sake of the Lord Jesus Christ. But we also do it for the sake of the honor and glory of God's name. Now that God has sent his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, now all the nations must repent and believe. They must come before God and worship. Think about how the Apostle Paul concluded his uh, his sermon to uh, the, the people at the Areopagus, the, the, the Athenian philosophers. He says, in times past, God, uh, God uh, overlooks the ignorance of the nations, but now he commands all nations to repent. Because of the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, now there is a need, an obligation for all nations to come to worship God. He has given his son 
that his son might be a light to the nations, that the salvation of God might reach to the very ends of the earth. And so there are a couple questions for us as we begin here tonight. First, do you care about missions? Do you care about the work of the church in advancing the gospel, not just in our own uh, local community, but even beyond to all the nations? And secondly, do you care for missions out of a desire to see God's name praised? Do you, do you care for missions, the work of missions, out of a desire to see God's name praised? Does his honor weigh heavily upon your heart? Is it, is it your greatest ambition to see God's name honored in all the nations? This is really the, the, a great test of how true your heart is to uh, the idea of promoting God's glory. If you say that you are one who cares deeply for the glory of God, but you do not care much for missions, there is something deficient in your care for the glory of God. There must be, because what we're saying when we're saying we care for missions is that God deserves the praise of all the nations. And we, with hearts that have been transformed by the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, we say, this message must go out. If, if God has really done this, if God really did send his son and his spirit to save his people, then surely this God deserves the praise and the worship of all the nations. And if you care, if you care about the glory of God, then you must support in any way you can this work of missions. And so if you're here and you're, and you're younger, if you're considering you know, what to do with your life, think about this. As you think about how it is that you can support the church and, and move the church forward, use whatever gifts you have for the sake of the advancement of the kingdom. Think about, as you're thinking about that, how you can use whatever gifts you have for the sake of the advancement of the kingdom of God in all the nations. Consider whether or not God would even call you to uh, serve him overseas. Or uh, if you're older and you have roots tied down here, or if you do, are not called to go yourself overseas, you think you're not called to the ministry, you know, I'm called to be here in my local church. That's going to be the calling of uh, the vast majority of people within the church. Still, how can I be praying for missionaries? How can I be supporting them? How can I be giving to them? Are there any needs that I uh, can uh, that I can meet myself? Uh, well, you know, one of the the great things that we've tried to do as a family is to receive uh, uh, email updates from missionaries so we can know how we can be praying for them. You know, one of the things about uh, people who are on the mission fields is it can be very lonely. They they have those who go out to preach the gospel among the nations. They have done this because they care for the glory of God, and they're willing to give up the comforts of their own culture, of their own home, to put up with quite a lot of things, to be cut off from their families, uh, their friends, for the sake of the honor and glory of God's name. And one of the great things that you can do is to simply support them and to be there for them. To, to get to know the missionaries and to, to ask them uh, what, what it is you could do to, to help them. Whatever it is, we must as a church and as individuals within the church do whatever we can to support the work of missions. Why do we do missions? There is no worship. There's no worship among the nations. It's not there like it should be. And why should there be worship? Because God is glorious. If you believe God is glorious, he must be worshipped. And he must be worshipped in the nations, and therefore the church does missions. Now, sometimes I'm asked uh, about the Old Testament. Why is it that in the Old Testament, the people of God seem not to care so much about evangelism? 
that you don't really see people traveling to the Philistine nations or to Edom or Moab uh, to preach the gospel. Uh, surely the gospel was proclaimed in the Old Testament. They had a very real hope in the coming Messiah, and they trusted in the Messiah uh, uh, through faith, the coming uh, of the Messiah. They believed that God would be faithful to his promises. And so in a lot of ways, their faith was just like ours, except that there does not seem to be uh, such uh, missionary activity as we see today. Why is that the case? Well, one of the things that we see through, as we go through the beginning of the Bible all the way to the end, uh, particularly in the Old Testament, is that in the Old Testament, missions is so much done because the gathering, the ingathering of the nations is a promise of God that is dependent upon God doing other things, namely the sending of the Son and the sending of the Spirit. That is to say, in the Old Testament, the, the result of missions is prophesied because there can be no ingathering of the nations without the sending of the Son and the Spirit. That is to say, it would not have been possible, even if the Israelites tried, for the nations to be gathered in. And they recognized that they could not, in their own strength, accomplish the things that God had said he would give to the people of God as a promise. And so one of the things that we see all throughout the Old Testament is that the ingathering of the nation is something that's always future looking. Think of uh, Abraham. Uh, there, it's prophesied that one day all the nations of the earth will be blessed in him and in his seed that is the Lord Jesus Christ. That there are... Uh, Enormous number of passages like this in Isaiah. The end of Isaiah 11, all the nations are gathered in. Isaiah 2, all the nations stream in. Uh, there are three nations in particular that are mentioned in Isaiah 19 that are brought in. Um, all the nations are gathered to the mountain of God in Isaiah 25. In Isaiah 60, all the nations come bearing their gifts and worshiping uh, Zion. Uh, they come to serve the church. Um, this is something that even Solomon spoke of in 1 Kings chapter 8. As he's praying at the dedication of the temple. He says, Lord, when all the nations come and they see all the great things you've done, and they pray towards this, this temple, then hear them and forgive them. And so all throughout the Old Testament, we see that there is this focus on the gathering of the nations, but it is largely future-oriented. And it's largely future-oriented because it is always dependent upon the, the coming of the Son and the coming of the Spirit. That is to say, then, if it is dependent upon the coming of the Son and the coming of the Spirit, then even missions in our day cannot be done in our own strength because it is absolutely dependent upon God giving the Son and God giving the Spirit. Before the giving of the Son, there was no ingathering of the nations. The moment the Son is raised on high and pours out the Spirit, at that very moment, there is an enormous ingathering that has never stopped since. The, 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 the great ingathering of the nations, the call to worship of all the nations can only be obeyed in so as far as God pours out his spirit. Now, this means then, even as we think about how the church should do missions, one of the things that's a, a very great temptation today is that many people think that the church should do missions by replicating uh, the, the uh, techniques of the world and trying to make Christianity appealing to other cultures and whatever else. But ultimately, the thing that's needed is the giving of the spirit. And if the thing that's needed is the giving of the spirit— then, the, then the, the primary focus of missions must be the preaching of the word, that God would bless the preaching of the word, the word which expounds what his son has done, and that he would bless it through the giving of the spirit. Missions could not be done 
in the Old Testament. They, in the Old Testament, they had the ways of the world. They had the, the techniques of the world. They could have imitated them. It couldn't be done. The only reason it can't be done now is because the Son and the Spirit have come. And if the Son and the Spirit has come, then that means that when we do missions, it must be in accordance with spiritual means. And so prayer. Prayer is an enormous thing that you can do. Praying that God would, in fact, pour out the Spirit upon the nations. And that he would honor his own name, even as he's promised that he would. That he would, that we would even live to see a, a great increase in the nations worshiping and praising God. That they would heed the call to worship that's given here. That God's name might be praised. This is the work of missions. This is the call of the nations to worship in verse 1. Now notice then, as we move to verse 2, that there are reasons that are given for the nations to worship. Why must the nations worship? Two things are said. First, because of God's merciful kindness. And second, because God's truth endures forever. And that truth can also be translated as faithfulness. The, the idea that God, whatever he says is true, whatever he promises, he will in fact carry out because he himself is faithful. So there are two reasons that are given. So we'll consider the first now, merciful kindness, the Lord's merciful kindness to Israel. This word that's translated as merciful kindness has to do with covenant love. Covenant love, that God has set his affections on his people in covenant relationship with them. Now, if the gospel reveals anything about God, it surely reveals that God himself is a loving God. By this we know love, that God gave his only son. He gave his only son for us. This is how we know the love of God. And he did this for us in the context of a covenant. God has shown his amazing and tremendous kindness and love towards us by sending his son to fulfill uh, the everlasting covenant which was made in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, if you're with us as we were going through the early chapters of Genesis, you remember I pointed out with marriage in particular at the end of Genesis chapter 2, that marriage is, in this in this human life, it is the strongest of all relationships that you'll ever have, and it's the only relationship that is based solely on a covenant. This is to say, when God gave us uh, a, a relationship, they, we have all kinds of blood relationships we have with one another, and we have all kinds of uh, familial relationships, all of them are based on blood. The only familial relationship that you have that's not based on blood is also the strongest. It's the only one that is based on covenant. Covenant, where both parties pledge themselves to do good to the other. And one of the things we see all throughout the Old Testament is, is that God always depicts his people as being in this kind of covenant marriage relationship with him. So in Isaiah chapter 51, we see this. Isaiah chapter 54. I think of Hosea 2. Even the the idea of uh, Hosea where he's told to marry a harlot and this is supposed to represent God's relationship with his people. The idea is that God is married to his people and yet his people have not been faithful to him. God has pledged to do good to his people as uh, part of a covenant commitment to them and he has required of them that they would honor their side of the covenant commitment by pledging to do certain things for him which they have not done for him. Uh, but God himself was then still faithful in order to do good to his people. When we see this idea of covenant faithfulness or covenant love, then the idea is that God, God has pledged to do you good. He has said, I do to you. He said, I will to the church. 
He said that he would forgive them of all their sins and that they would dwell in this kind of uh, relationship with him where they have an intimate fellowship with him to all eternity. He's given them these great promises to do them good and to love them. And so, brothers and sisters, if you're a Christian, this is something to, to bask in, basking in the love of God, the relationship that you have with God, the most intimate of all relationships. The, 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 the strongest uh, earthly relationship is but a, a pale glimpse of the kind of covenant love which God shows to his people. Think of it, all the things that you have as a result of this covenant love. Your sins have been forgiven. You're covered by the blood of, of the Lamb. You are adopted into the family of God. You have fellowship with God. You have an inheritance with the Lord Jesus Christ. And even death itself will be swallowed up when the Lord Jesus Christ returns. This is the covenant faithfulness, the, the merciful kindness that God has shown to his people. But notice as well with the beginning of verse 2, that really here we have an allusion to specific historical events, things that God has done concretely in history in order to show forth this kind of love to his people. Notice it says, for his, his merciful kindness is great towards us. And another, another way you could translate it is that he has magnified or made, he's made strong or made mighty his merciful kindness towards us. It's not just that God is in his very nature, one who expresses merciful kindness to us, which is of course true. It's here the emphasis is on the fact that God did this at a particular time, that God actually showed it forth with concrete acts. And so think of, of even uh, the way the Exodus is described in Deuteronomy chapter seven, God brings out his people from Egypt. Uh, but it says there that, you know, Moses asked the question, why is it God did this? He did this because he loves you. He did this because he sets his affections on you. He remembered the covenant which he made with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He did these things in time with historical concrete acts because of this kind of, of commitment and love to you. And the same is true, but even far to a far greater extent with what he's done for us in his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. If you ever were to doubt the love of God, surely, surely, not, not just that you hear it said over and over again that God is love, but surely the act that God has concretely done for you proves beyond a shadow of a doubt that God does in fact love you. You know, in a lot of, in a lot of ways, talk is cheap. There are many who will proclaim their love for another person. Uh, some who will even say, if you're in a romantic relationship, you know, like I would die for this person or, or that kind of thing. And then when the moment comes down to it, they find themselves unwilling to do uh, even uh, even the smallest kinds of sacrifices uh, for the sake of that person. Talk is talk is cheap. We can say that we love someone, uh, but very often uh, our ability to carry out a real kind of sacrificial love uh, is something that we don't possess. But not so with God. God did not just say it, but he did it. He, he did in time and history magnify his merciful kindness to us in that when we were still sinners, he sent Christ to die for his people. You know, sometimes when others love, when they say they love you or they say they care for you, sometimes the way they act makes you wonder, you know, does this person really care for me? It seems like they, I, know, I know they say it, but, but do they really do it? Do, do, do they really love me and care for me as they say that they do? Well, brothers and sisters, God has shown us these things by sending his son to die on the cross for our sins. 
He has shown us concretely this kind of covenant love and faithfulness to us. If you've ever wondered, does God love you? If you are in Christ, he absolutely does. If you have repented of your sins and turned to him, if you are truly trusting in Christ for your salvation, God does love you. Wonder no more. He has sent his son for your salvation. Now, the last thing about this, about this merciful kindness is that notice there's a contrast. In verse 1, the nations are to praise and worship God. And in verse 2, the first thing that said, it's because of God's merciful kindness towards us, not towards all the nations, but actually towards us is the emphasis of this particular verse. All the nations, when they see the great things that God has done for us, the Israelites, they are to worship and praise God. One of the things that was true in the Old Testament is that the nation of Israel was meant to be a, a kind of conduit for all the blessings of God, that the nations uh, were to see all the great things which God had done for the nation of Israel, and they then were to uh, see it and then in some ways have a, a kind of godly jealousy and be brought in uh, to worship God. And so this is why the nation of Israel as a whole, as a whole nation, was called a kingdom of priests. They were to be mediators between all of the nations and God himself. They, they were to, to bring in the nations through that kind of, those kind of indirect means. And so as God blesses the nation of Israel, then all the nations were to come in. This, of course, failed because of the, the sinfulness of the people of God. Uh, they were uh, unable to be truly a kingdom of priests. But, but it has been fulfilled in the one who is the great and true Israelite, who is the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Even in the Old Testament, the Messiah was already called Israel. He was called the true Israelite, who would represent all the people. And where, where they failed, it would be him who would uh, succeed and who would get all the blessings. And so this is, this is the way it is. Even here, uh, this is fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. God is, shows his loving kindness towards the Son, and the Son is blessed. And then through the Son, as the great mediator of the new covenant, all of the nations of the earth are blessed. And so think about this, brothers and sisters, for you. This is how it happened for you. As, as I said, many of you do not have a Jewish background. We were, we were these Gentiles who were outsiders. And all of these things, all of the blessings have come to you through the loving kindness which God has shown to you. But even in, in a more particular sense, the, the kindness he showed to the Lord Jesus Christ the kindness you showed to him, and in him, then, as you are united to him, you have all of these blessings. This covenant kindness which was shown to him. And so, so, so think about this then. If you, are, uh, if you are, are a participant of these blessings, they come to you only in Christ. Only in him. There's no other way they can come to you. It's only in him that all of the nations of the earth will be blessed. And if this is true then surely you are to worship and praise God. Surely you are to praise his son who has done all these things for you. So this is the first reason. Why are you to worship and praise God? Because of the Lord's merciful kindness to Israel, particularly to the true Israel. Notice then the second reason that's given. And the truth of the Lord endures forever. Again, as I mentioned, the, the word truth can be translated as faithfulness. The idea is that God is true to his word. That he is faithful to his word. Whatever God says, he will accomplish. Once God says it, the moment he says it, you can know that it will, in fact, be accomplished by him. 
Think of uh, the way even this is fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. Think of the words of Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, uh, verse 20, that all the promises of God are yes and amen in the Lord Jesus Christ. They all come about through the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, one of the things that we also see about God's faithfulness in, in, in the Bible, both the Old Testament and the New Testament, is that God often makes promises in the context of a covenant, and yet... In, in terms of the covenant obligations for the people of God, there are things that they, they, they need to do in order to be faithful to God. And yet, God always fulfills his promises to his people, even when they themselves are faithless to him. This is one of the great questions that came about uh, in the history of uh, God's people. You know, once they go in exile to Babylon and the Davidic line is destroyed, the great question is, have God's promises now failed? Is, is God really going to send the Messiah? We don't have the temple as a pledge that God is, is doing good to us and that the Messiah will come and build a better house later. We don't have the Davidic king sitting on the throne as a pledge that God will, in fact, send the greater David's son who will reign on the throne forever. We don't have these pledges anymore, and God has cast us off. Is it the case when we went into exile and God says, you are no longer my people, that he will no longer then send his son as he promised? Will God remain faithful to his promises even when we are faithless to him? And that question is answered resoundingly in the Old Testament. Yes, God will continue to, to be faithful. He will still send his son. He will, uh, he will bring the people back from exile and he will fulfill all of his promises to us. Think of what the Apostle Paul said in Romans chapter 3. Let God be proved true, though every man a liar. Or again in 2 Timothy uh, chapter 2, when we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. There is nothing that we can do to nullify the faithfulness of God. Whatever he has promised, let him be proved true, though every man a liar. Everything he says, he will bring about. He is faithful in all that he says and does. Now think of, of this, brothers and sisters. Think of the, the most trustworthy person you know in this life, the person who loves you the best, who you would never think would betray you. You'd have to admit, even in that situation, there can be times, perhaps when even that person has let you down, where they've said something and perhaps they didn't have the ability to carry out the thing that they've said, or it slipped their mind, or uh, something else came up and they had to back out of something. The reality is, is, in that, is that in every earthly relationship, in every human relationship, we are let down by one another. Humans are not as faithful as we ought to be. But with God, it is different. Though you be let down by everyone around you, God is perfectly faithful. Every promise that he has given to his people will, in fact, be performed. Every single blessing that he's said that he would give to you will, in fact, be yours. Now, think of this as you think of these two things together. The love which God has for you and the faithfulness of all that he says. Think of the peace that this ought to give you. That the almighty God loves you. He's promised you great and wonderful things. And he's even confirmed these promises with an oath. That you might know that these things are yours. And that nothing can take them from you. No matter what you're going through now. Surely this ought to give you the peace that surpasses all understanding. You will be with God forever. And he will wipe away every tear from your eyes. You will be made perfectly blessed as you enjoy him to all eternity. God is faithful in all that he says. No matter what you're going through, no matter what kind of trials or tribulations, you always have reason to worship God 
because of his merciful kindness towards you and because of his faithfulness to you. If these two things are true, does God not deserve your worship? Is the psalmist not right to call the entire world to worship him? Is he not right to do so? Is God not worthy of the praise of all the nations if he has shown his merciful kindness to the world by sending his son and in absolute faithfulness despite all kinds of sin against him? Surely God is worthy of this kind of worship. Now, I've spoken for a long time on quite a short psalm, but again, the message is very simple. God is the God of the entire world. He's done great and wonderful things through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And because of that, the entire world must worship. It must worship. And brothers and sisters, this means for you as well. What must you do? You must worship. If these things are true, let all the ends of the earth worship and praise God. Let all the ends of the earth uh, receive this glorious message that his loving kindness has been shown to them in, in Christ and that for all who turn, they will be covered by the blood of the lamb and receive all these blessings that he is perfectly faithful even to uh, even forever. He is faithful to all that he has said and that he does. May God's name be worshipped. May the greatness of God be something that rises up within your hearts and cause you to give your life and worship to him. Let's pray. Oh, Father, how good and glorious you are. How, Lord, you are worthy of all worship and praise. How we do thank you for all that you have done for us in your son, the Lord Jesus Christ, that you did not leave and abandon his soul to corruption, Lord, but you raised him from the dead. You vindicated him and now us in him. You were faithful, O Lord, when we had sinned against you. You still sent your son when you had every reason to say this people has not held up their end of the bargain. Lord, you still were faithful. And so, Lord, we worship you. Lord, please grant us this, the peace that surpasses all understanding that comes simply from knowing that these things are true. And help us, O oh Lord, to devote our lives to the worship of your name. And may it be, Lord, that the ends of the earth would see and hear, that they would come to you and worship. We pray, O oh Lord, that you would advance your kingdom and that your salvation would reach the very ends of the world. For you are a good God and you are worthy. We ask all these things in the name of your Son. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to find out more about our church, you can visit us at newcovopcssf.com. That's N-E-W-C-O-V-O-P-C-S-S-F dot com. If you'd like to worship with us on Sunday, our service times are 10.30 a.m. and 5 o'clock p.m.